I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. What in the world is happening on Wall Street? Economic indicators. Who knows where this is going to end up? To understand the economy... You have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you doing there? It's David. It's podcast time. Again, it's been a funny, funny, funny old week. Mr. Davis, how are you? I'm good. It did, has been a funny old week. Did you say? I know, I know. Yeah. Did you see that our old place of employment has been sold? Our alma mater. <laughs> News talk. Do you remember that place? Yes, I do. You know, the maddest thing is I was the first, God bless them, voice ever heard on News Talk. Oh, yeah. Yes. The Breakfast yeah. Show. Yeah. And, I don't know, 2002, three. I can't remember do what it was. you remember it well, actually? I remember the red light going on. So, like, radio is really easy to do. Any broadcaster who says it's hard, it's not. It's a, it's a total laugh, right? Jesus, okay. No, but it was quite fun. Like, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. The, you, you're, the red light comes on, you, the mic in front of you, the red light comes on, and it's just this boom, moment away of you boom. Go. Yeah. However, I do remember the red light coming on, first day of news talking. There was a lot of hype, you know, a mm. lot of hype. Mm. And you're the, you're the breakfast presenter, and you're kind of never had that sort of nervousness on TV before or radio. Right. And the red light came on, and, and it was, we are on air. My voice went right up into my throat. It was really weird. Oh, really? It was just that first minute. I can't forget the audio of that. It was... <laughs> I'm not sure if it's available anymore. No, but, but it was just that first minute you just thought, shit, this yeah. is it. And Because again, you know, a new a new radio station launch is a big deal. Yeah. And because it was talk radio. Were you scripted? How, how, how much now, were you scripted? That was the interesting thing. You actually said that, John, I thought it would be easier to freelance it. Right. But in actual fact, it's never easier. Apart from podcasts, we can just sit and have a chat. But if you're on live broadcast, you need your script. You need to know where you're going. But it was you, a, It's a roadmap more it's than It's a roadmap, a, you know. A, but a uh, I mean, it was, I mean, presenting radio is such a hoot. It's great. It's the, it's the, I mean, and you, and you were doing the sound, yeah. which is, it's, which is, you know, it's kind of mad that John and I, you see this podcast we're talking about? <laughs> we actually, we were actually doing this at News Talk years ago. And we yeah. were the, we were the brain drain from News Talk. Oh, yes, we were the brain drain, exactly. <laughs> but actually, speaking of News Talk, I remember my, Worst radio moments, John. Kind we... of funniest as well, though. All right, go on. So News Talk was very, very young and trying to take on RTE, which was the big mm. beast, right? So if we got a big interview, somebody really yeah. big, it yeah. was a major, major bragging point. And it was during the Iraq War. So think about this. The Iraq War, 
the biggest, obviously the biggest person in the world yeah, is yeah. Donald Rumsfeld in the, in the States. But the second or third biggest person in the world is the Foreign Secretary of the United Kingdom. Yeah. Because the Brits under Blair had gone in with them. Yeah. And after about four weeks of toing and froing, toing and froing, the Foreign Secretary of the United Kingdom, Robin Cook, <laughs> said, yes, we will do this interview. Yeah. Said when He's a strange looking man, wasn't strange he? Strange looking man, little leprechaun looking fellow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ended up falling off. He actually fell off a mountain and died. What? That's happened. He slipped off a mountain and he died. But that's a different story. Jeez, I never knew that. Yeah, and he was also riding the secretary. Do you not remember all that stuff came on? <laughs> and people were amazed, like, how come he got the secretary? Anyway, <laughs> that's, a, that's a little bit like John Major with yeah. the pants, the underpants over him. Yeah, and you. Yeah. <laughs> Do you remember the underpants over his thing? Edwina Curry? Yeah, Edwina Curry. Listen, it's all going on. It's all going on. But so we landed the interview mm. before Morning Ireland, which is always the big thing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. With this fellow, yeah. Robin yeah. Cook. And I'm the presenter. And I'm like, yeah, that's cool, cool, cool. Slightly nonchalant, but actually thinking, shit, I better actually get this right. Yeah. This whole interview, because it's a big deal. It was quarter to eight in the morning, right? And... You know what happens in radio? You're, you're passing from one guest to another, right? Because yeah. you've done all the production. Right? Yeah. And the chief economist of Good Body Stockbrokers, who is now the chief executive of AIB, oh, right. joined at the okay. hip, as we were saying last yeah. week, down in the uh, Aviva lower stand, <laughs> okay, is a guy called Colin Hunt. Yeah. And I, had, I was talking to Colin Hunt about the economy. And to hand over from Colin Hunt, to Robin Cook. So producers signaling, you know, your man's on the line, your man's on the line. The, you know, the we've gone through this iterations of British Foreign Secretary media advisors, yada, yada, yada. Yeah. It's a big, big interview. Colin Hunt is talking to me about, you know, the economy and what's going to go on. And I said, then the producer said, okay, he's on the line now. So we yeah. get him up on the line and I can hear him breathing in my headphones, right? And he's just there. And I'm trying to say goodbye to Colin Hunt. And I'm trying to say good morning to Robin Cook. And I say, Robin Cunt, good morning to you. <laughs> How did he react? <laughs> all I heard was he's Scottish guy. Yeah. And he said, that was choice language. <laughs> and away we went. He was grand. Anyway, how are you doing there? It's the podcast. But the funny, these are the great things that happen on radio. These are the great things that happen on radio. But interesting thing, though, about Communicore, with yeah. my economics and finance hat on, big hullabaloo this week, sold for 100 million, which always sounds good. It's 100 yeah. million, right? I said, okay, how much profit did that company make last year? Communicore. Yeah. 1.6 million. So... That means... That's the whole of Communicore. The whole thing. It's crazy. I was looking at their accounts, right? So, News Talk, Today FM, 98, Spin. The whole yo, the whole lot, right? Jesus. They make 44 million in revenue. So, it's a big company. Mm -hmm. But on that revenue, they only make 1.6 million profit. So, it's a bullshit business. That's all the presenters, you know that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's true. They get... Imagine we got paid like that. Okay. But think about it. And you're trying to tell me, you're trying to spin to the Irish public that somebody bought this for a hundred million, which means yeah. which means a radio station, a really old German radio station with loads of radio assets, bought a business for 62 times earnings. But so what do you think Give is going on break. there then? It's you know, it's this whole Irish thing. It's all bullshit, spin and macho-ness, and we got out of the business and we did this and that. So 
unless the Germans paid somebody else a huge chunk of that 100 million, yeah. which allegedly they paid for Communicore, they paid 62 times earnings, which is, John, most businesses in media will sell for 10 times earnings. Yeah, yeah, that's the norm, isn't it? Communicore should have been sold for about 16 million. Right. Right? And so, they're claiming. So let's go back. Remember last week we were talking about the, the West. But are Lower. they based? Sorry, sorry. Are they basing it on the revenue or the profit? You always base businesses are always based on profit because that's the yeah that's the elixir of commerce. You know, yeah. revenue is nothing. Revenue is great because it means market share and blah blah blah. But if you're making no money, then you sell for no money. Hey, let me ask you a question then. You know, all these the dot com bubble back in its day yeah. and that now okay. all okay. of the, the No, it's a companies. fair point. So, you know the way you say, like, for example, Uber is valued at blah, 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 yeah, blah. Yeah, yeah. Or yeah. Apple, right? Or whatever Apple makes profit, right? Uber or Tesla or whatever, right? Yeah. Radio is an old-fashioned business. You know, buying a radio asset, you're not buying the future, you're buying the past. Yeah, yeah. So, but I come back to the whole Irish nonsense in business circles. 100 million, just it's like a macho figure. Yeah. There's 100 no, bar. 100 bar. There's no way in the world these Germans paid 100 million. Certainly on a basic idea, John. Right. Finance. This makes no sense. And what it strikes me is the same idea as we talked about in the West Lower last week. You know, <laughs> Jim talking to Tony, talking to Mick. Good man. Don't forget Barry. <laughs> Barry from Irish Permo. <laughs> Never forget Barry. And Tarquin. Tarquin, yeah. Tarquin's in there. Anyway, that's my... Tarquin had probably brokered that deal anyway. Of course Tarquin brokered the deal. So apart from that, what else has been rocking your world? Actually, do you remember last week we were talking to Claudia Sam? I do, yeah. Yeah, the Fed economist. Former Fed economist, yeah. And and she was talking about inflation. One of our guys, Brian Grebe... On Patreon. On Patreon in uh, San Francisco. He sent me a picture of a badge... They call them buttons over there. Yeah, a button. But this was a button with win on it. Win. Meaning win. what? Meaning whip inflation now. No and, way. And in they the were 70s. All, in the 70s. And they were all given them, seemingly. And they were all walking around with these anti-inflation badges. I love that. Like, exactly. a, like in school in the 70s. Yeah. yeah. That's so good. That is so good. Actually, speaking of these things, before we talk about inflation, things you were given in the 70s, when Shan was in primary school in Belfast yeah. for the Queen's Jubilee. Oh, yeah. All the schools were given Queen mugs with the picture of the Queen on them, right? <laughs> and if we ever have any Al Republicans in this house, you know, people we know be really nasty. Does she still have it? Yeah, we have it upstairs. <laughs> she was given it in 1977 when she was like a 10 or whatever, even, like, even younger than that, right? They all got the Queen mum. And when she brought it down, I love it. So if we got people in the house who ever come, I know they're quite nationalist. Yeah, yeah. I was giving cups of tea in the Queen mum. <laughs> anyway, we want to talk about inflation. Do you know what we're going to do? We'll talk about inflation now. We'll talk also about a cousin of the inflation worry is the debt worry, the deficit worry. Sure, yeah, yeah. But later on, we have a conversation with an amazing economist called Noah Smith, probably yeah. one of the most yeah. interesting economists on Twitter at the moment yeah. about the housing market. Mm. And he's really good about it. And there's some great ideas. He's, he's got some great ideas. So yeah. We'll talk about that. So inflation, John, yeah. Last Thursday, bond markets sold off. The financial market said... They kind of woke up to the fact that having spent the last year saying inflation's not a problem, blah, 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 mm. they realized inflation's going to come through or some inflation. So you get a significant sell-off in bonds. 
meaning that the rate of interest that the American government will have to pay in the future on debt they raise now is going to be higher. Why is that reflection of inflation? Because if inflation is higher in the future and interest rates do not adjust upwards, mm. it means that people who invest now, but who get paid in 30 years' time, will find their investment debased by inflation. So consequently, interest rates have to rise to adjust to that. So that's what that's To entice about. them into buying. To entice them to buy it, to say, look, you know, you're worried about inflation, but we will keep the rate of interest above the rate of inflation so you get what's called a real rate of return. You, okay. get, you, get, you get a real rate of return. So the question then is, what's the problem? My own view has been very sanguine on this, John, for a long time, which is the following. We need inflation. Inflation running at 2%, 2.5%, 3%, is a sign of success, not failure. That was, that was always about the norm, wasn't it? About 2 yeah, 3%. Yeah. And then since 2008, it has become a deflationary world. And therefore, having inflation rates at 2 or 3% are regarded as kind of hysterically dangerous. And what's also happened is that the Federal Reserve has reduced interest rates to zero. Yeah. So if inflation is a two, two and a half, three percent, and interest rates are zero, it means you're getting a negative two and a half percent return on money. So it means that actually the rate of interest has to adjust upwards. Okay. So can I just ask you a question then? Because we've been talking about helicopter money, yeah. and we can borrow lots of cash, distribute it out at zero percent. So if inflation goes up. What does that mean for all our borrowing? Yeah, it means that borrowing, the rate of borrowing, the rate of interest in borrowing will go up again. But we're talking small amounts here. But what I want to say to people is that this is just a reflection of the economic cycle. When the economic cycle turns up, driven largely by huge government spending in the United States, for example, it's normal to think that inflation will go up. Because mm. what happens is, Inflation is a function of something called the output gap in economics. The output gap is the difference between the actual output of the economy and the potential output of the economy. And what has happened in the pandemic, of course, is the potential output of the economy stays the same, but the actual output collapses because we've closed down the thing, right? Right. So okay. therefore, the output gap between where we are now and where we could potentially go is huge, right? So if the rate of inflation ticks upwards, it's a sign of success, not failure. It's a sign that the actual output of the economy is moving towards the potential output, which is what you want. Okay. Right? And but, but it can't move too fast, though. It can't move too fast. It can't move beyond it, right? Mm. And of course, where you see this is in the labor market. So the rate of un unemployment will continue to contain, contain, contain. It's called the Phillips curve in economics, which is this inverse relationship between inflation and unemployment. So, for example, you can have very low levels of unemployment, but quite high levels of inflation, because obviously as unemployment falls, the amount of people looking for work is falling. Therefore, wages rise, rise because yeah. there's less people yeah, and vice that. versa, right? Yeah. So... There is a sort of a hissy fit going on at the moment, and it's important to create the distinction between the actual economy and the financial market economy. So the actual economy, if the rate of inflation rises, that is a good thing. Yeah. That's a sign that we're going in the right direction, that we're closing the output gap, that unemployment is falling, and the economy is moving into 
an expansionary mode. Yeah. However, and this is the thing, the financial markets are freaking out. Why? Because the financial markets became very effervescent in the last couple of years because interest rates went to zero. So all these speculative assets from Bitcoin and Tesla and all these things mm. went through the roof based on 0% interest. When the rate of interest is at zero, the cost of investing is zero. Okay, So the cost of messing up is zero. Mm. And if the rate of interest is to rise after a period of low interest rates, historically low interest rates, lots of the investments that were legitimate when interest rates were zero yeah. are rendered illegitimate when interest rates are 3 or 4%, right? So you have this disconnect between the hysterical financial markets, which is getting upset about an uptick mm. in the rate of inflation, and the actual economy, which should welcome it, because it's actually a sign of health and exuberance and expansion. So, so when there's a bit of inflation, not too much, it's good for the labor market. It's good. It's great. But then for the asset owners. It's bad. Remember I always talked that economics is counterintuitive. Yeah, yeah. You've always got to ask yourself, why are interest rates at zero? Their interest rates are at zero because the rate of unemployment is higher than it should be and wages are lower than they should be. So for the asset guy, for the wealthy, this is the difference between wealth and income. It's so critical to understand in economics and yeah. yet so few people talk about it. Yeah. So yeah. wealth is asset prices, houses, stocks, whatever, right? Income is wages. If you depend on wages for your income, right, you want a wee bit of inflation. Mm. Not lots, but enough. Mm. So your wages are rising. Prices are rising too, but there's a certain effervescence. And also the reason is usually the guy who's dependent on income from wages has some debt like mortgage debt. Yeah. And mortgage debt is made cheaper by inflation. So if you talk to our parents who bought houses in the 1960s, yeah. even though at the time they felt the houses were hugely expensive, mm -hmm. inflation made that debt disappear, right? But because their wages rose dramatically, but their debts were stable. But does the interest rate on the debt not go up as well? So the interest rate goes down, but you're paying down the principal all the time. So eventually you inflate away your debt. That's the okay. key. Now, what I'm saying is that after years and years and years of almost zero rate of inflation, we would be down, we should be down on bended knee looking for a wee bit of inflation. But the reason that the financial markets are worried is because they have made bets on a zero rate of interest which will unravel if the rate of interest goes to 3%. So they're screaming, mm. but the average guy doesn't care. And this is the disconnect between finance and economics. And it's crucial to keep coming back to this. That the average guy's barometer for everything. Remember we talked about the house prices last week? Mm -hmm. Is income. Yeah. If your house prices are a ridiculous multiple of income, they're too expensive. Income has to be the what I describe as the foundational price of everything. And wages have to be the foundational price of income because the vast majority of people depend on wages for their income. Does a little bit of inflation eventually level the playing field? Well, I think that it helps enormously. But I also think that, as Claudia Sam was saying last week, 
economics is now the older generation of economists yeah. are people who were brought up in the 70s and have got this hysterical fear of inflation. But our generation shouldn't have, and clearly the generation coming behind us shouldn't have. Their concerns are much deeper. There are things like the housing market. Yeah. And they don't worry about inflation. But they've never experienced inflation, though, either at the same time. No, they time. haven't. So, but I mean, that's 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 fair enough. Like, you, you know, I, I always think that humans are nothing more than the sum of their memories. If you think about yeah, it. Yeah, right? okay, I'll go with that. And the sum of your memories are conditioned by the world in which you were born into. And we were not born into an inflation world, you and I, so we don't have any sense of it, right? So the last thing we should do is bully the next generation with the anxieties of the last generation. <laughs> the, you know, the next generation yeah, should I be bullied that, by their own anxieties. And their anxieties are the housing of, market. Of which they have many. They have many. But the big economic one is the housing market. So let's talk to somebody who I think is probably the most erudite younger economist writing at the moment. He's a guy called Noah Smith. He writes on Twitter under the handle at Noah Opinion. So at no opinion, yeah, right? It's nice. piss take of himself, <laughs> right? But he has amazing, amazing opinions. And he's got some very interesting things to say about the housing market, how to fix it, how to change it. So why don't we go to California and talk to him right now? Noah, good morning to you. It's a morning time in California, isn't it? It is. It's about uh, 10 in the morning. Great. Well, listen, Noah, S San Francisco and Dublin have one or two things in common. One of them is a ridiculous house price boom over the last 20-odd years, uh, driven largely by the same companies that are on the ground there, are on the ground here, but in a different capacity, clearly. You wrote a piece the other day saying that you thought it was a good idea, and I was fascinated by it, to link wages to rents, minimum wages to rents. Explain that to me. Tell me what's going on in the housing market in San Francisco first, and then explain the thinking behind it. So if you really want to understand what's going on in the U.S. housing market, you have to read this book called Golden Gates by Connor Doherty. That is the book that will just explain it all. But the, the brief version is that as America has shifted from manufacturing to knowledge industries, you know, software or finance or what have you, people have just been flooding these high earning workers have been flooding into the cities and the people who lived in the cities and were used to the, you know, the sort of low density American urbanism have resisted this strongly um, and, and have really blocked housing development. And that has really raised the price of housing because when you have more demand and you have less supply, you get higher prices. And so the problem is that existing incumbent homeowners are incredibly politically powerful. They show up to all the planning meetings they are very active in local government and people who, you know, renters are, are mostly not very powerful. And the people who would like to possibly move into your city have zero power at all because they don't live there yet. That's the big problem. So my idea was basically if your minimum wage is tied to your local rent, it does two things. The first thing it does is it ensures that minimum wage will be enough for low income people to be able to afford shelter which is A, one of the most basic survival commodities along with food that everyone needs to be able to afford. And B, which is you know, a very large piece of the expenditures of poor people. And so if you tie minimum wage to rent, you're basically insured. And of course you could add stuff like food in there, but if you have it depend at least in large part on rent, 
then you ensure that it's enough to be a living wage. And so that's the first part of it. But the second part is that you know, restaurants and some other businesses, they want to keep minimum wage down. And so if in order to keep minimum wage down, they had to keep housing costs down, you'd turn every restaurateur into a lobbyist for more and cheaper housing. So you'd have to, to implement the policy so you couldn't just implement rent control. You'd have to actually provide more supply, be that through you know, public housing, market rate housing, or whatever most effectively reduces the cost that people actually pay for housing. So basically, you'd get uh, you know, every McDonald's manager to show up to the planning meetings and shout down the NIMBY owners who are trying to block new development, and it would be good for urban politics in that way. So that's why the idea. I mean, this is one of these fantastically logical ideas. And, and I, I think an Irish audience, particularly a Dublin audience, uh, because house prices here have gone way, way out of the reach of the average guy. Average everybody. And, and what, what you've said there is exactly the problem in Dublin is that we never had knowledge workers until about 10 years ago. We didn't have anybody want to live here. Most of us actually emigrated. And then suddenly what you have is, it's not even nimbyism. I think it's, uh, it's called bananaism. It's like build absolutely nothing anywhere near anything. And... <laughs> I hadn't heard that one. Well, that's there you great. go. You, yeah, but that's the banana is, you know, and, and, and the banana. <laughs> and then you become a banana republic. You become a banana republic, and the banana istas are actually out there. In actual fact, they're out there even today on a cycle lane. It's a cycle lane has pissed them off in Dublin today, which I was noticing. But it's that general idea that the system is stuck, where you have the people who want change have no avenue to voice change, and the people who don't want change have all the power. And any other ideas on housing that you might just throw out to us? Oh, you know, there's there's lots. One is to do a variant of what Singapore does and promote home ownership among low-income people and make home price appreciation more sustainable by having the government build new houses and sell them very cheaply to low-income people and to first-time home buyers, like, you know, young people, whatever. And so this is a version of what Singapore does, similar. And the rationale here is that if you try to promote broad middle-class wealth through home ownership, you run into the problem of appreciation. Because for me, an old person to make money off my house requires you, a young person, to not be able to buy a house. And so the system works once and then it stops. And we had this in America. The GI Bill helped all the World War II people returning from World War II to buy houses cheaply in the newly constructed suburbs. So they did. And those houses went up and up in price. And then we built more suburbs and then boomers got in on it. And they boomers actually got in on it and the houses went up and up in price. But by the time we started getting to Generation X and the millennials, this was no longer working because people were actually starting to be priced out of the market. And a housing bubble temporarily covered this up. But when the housing bubble crashed in 2007, it exposed the fact that housing prices, you know, like there's just not much room for them to rise before you start suppressing home ownership rates. And so we have suppressed home ownership rates. Fewer people own houses. It's no longer, you know, the price is high, but the returns are low. And so that system is non-sustainable. But what you can do is you can use tax money to build housing and then sell it below cost to 
young people, and because you're building new housing, you're increasing supply, but because you're selling it at below cost to these young people and low-income people, you're allowing them to get on the appreciation train. You're sort of holding down the bottom yeah, of the yeah, escalator so there's more room to go. And so so that's sort of what Singapore does. And there, there's difficulties with managing it. And I don't think we'll be able to, we'd be able to manage it as carefully and as closely as Singapore does, obviously. It's just a city. But I think that we could do something like that. That's my other housing idea. But I think that's a that's an amazing idea because again, you know, I'm looking at the Irish government, looking at the US government. We can we can now borrow at, you know, almost zero here in the European Union. The upfront costs to the state, if you just amortize over 100 years, is zero for building subsidized housing. But what you're doing is you're allowing people to get in on the game and you're allowing people to get in the game earlier and cheaper and then let them play the game and you just keep doing it. That's the idea. You just keep building, building, building. Right. And so we need to build, but the problem is that we need to overcome the political economy. We need to overcome the fact that people who live in cities already get a vote and people who might move to cities don't get a vote. So interestingly, if you're if you're a real econ geek, you know about this idea called Tibu equilibrium. The, um, you know, you're going to have to explain uh, that to me and then you're going to explain that to everyone else. So this guy Tibu said, basically, uh, if you have a government run by a whole lot of independent, broken up little cities, then everyone votes with their feet and then everyone gets to live in the place they want. And the necessity to attract people and tax revenues forces cities to implement good policies that will attract people to move in. Sounds lovely. Doesn't work. And a, a mathematical economist did a math paper showing, you know, dozens of ways in which it fails. But there's no mathematical reason why this should be a good idea. It's just the kind of idea that appeals to libertarians. Everyone yeah. uh, voting with their feet and Libertarians, I know, will still advocate this. They advocate, you know, charter cities and city states and things like that, imagining this this lovely little world in their mind where everybody just sort of sorts into the cities they want and moves to the place they want to go. It just doesn't work like that at all. It's complete fantasy. And America tried to implement sort of a version of this with racism. So basically because of racism, because a, a lot of suburbanites who were mostly white in those days, not anymore, but were mostly white in the, you know, in the mid 20th century carved their suburbs off into independent cities. And of course, this is really bad because public goods, local public goods, uh, which can include, you know, infrastructure, schools, policing, anything. Public goods are things where, you know, you can add people without adding cost. So it's, it's public goods in some general sense just means low marginal cost. It's like an example of a public good would be like a nice park. So if you have two people in a park, it's really nice. And if you have 10 people in a park, it's, in fact, it's even nicer than it's if you have nicer, two people. Yeah. Now, eventually you, over, you overwhelm it and so you start to get to congestion problems. If you, if you have everyone just standing room only in a park, it's no fun. But until you get to that point, you know, it's, it's this thing where, you know, you might as well have more people in the park, but the park still costs the same amount to build and maintain. So that's the example of scale. And so if you have a lot of people in your city, right, then you have um, you lower the cost per person sure, of providing sure. sewage systems yeah. sure. and, and you lower the cost per person of providing and, nice yeah. roads and all these things. And so, so big cities are more efficient in this way. And yet America carved up a lot of our cities into these tiny mini cities and that has made us a lot less efficient. And that's why a lot of these cities just spend way too much money on all their services 
It's just way too expensive. And it's also a reason why they're not building housing because no one city wants to shoulder the burden of housing the people who work in the nearby cities. Now, it's a, it's a, it's an extraordinary thing. And it's, it's the one thing on the podcast that people really, really respond to, which is, look, I've got a good job. My partner's got a good job. We're 32 years old. We're doing all the right things. It isn't working for us. Please, you know, figure, you know, and, and I think these basic ideas that basically this is a power vacuum and one crowd is power and they're usually older and they're usually boomers and, you know, whatever, they play the game right. And then all the millennials and the, and the ones coming behind them are kind of left on the outside. Noah, that's fantastic. Listen, thanks so much for your time. Awesome. Great stuff, Anytime, man. Anytime, guys. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. So that was Noah Smith there, John. I think... He was fascinating, wasn't he? Well, you know, I think the way he analysed it, one is we're talking about a demographic and cultural change of knowledge workers wanting to live in cities, Yeah. number one. They are running into the brick wall against people who already live in cities who say, not in my backyard. Or as I said, bananaism, built absolutely (laughs) nothing anywhere near anything, right? The problem is that the people who already live in the city have a vote. The people who want to live in the city have no vote. So it's a totally lopsided equation. Yeah. So you never get anything done if you're depending on actual local democracy, which is the interesting thing. That's what he's saying. And then he says, well, how to change this is you co-opt more people into the idea. Like His basic idea is the only way in which you will reduce house prices is build more houses. Yeah. Right, that's the first thing. The only way you build more houses is if you're allowed to build more houses. The only way you're allowed to build more houses is if you face down people who say, well, not in my backyard. You mm. can't build here. So you have to disembowel the residence committees. Like, I don't know if you've seen it on, on, in Sandy Mount. Sandy Mount, by the way, is a suburb, inner suburb outside Dublin. Runs along the coast. The state wants to introduce a cycle lane, which is a good thing. Yeah. The residents of the roads where the cars that used to be on that street will be displaced to. Yeah. The NIMBYs, 
are saying, not my backyard, you won't, right? And they've now got a stay of execution. They've gone to the high court, all that sort of nonsense. Either we have a vision for the city or we don't. Yeah. And that's, I think, what Noah's saying. And I thought his idea of linking wages to rents is really clever. This takes us a little bit back to the mayor idea that, that yeah, you spoke about yeah, before. Yeah, yeah. So how would that address this issue? Well, I think what the mayor could do, the directly elected mayor with real power. Mm. And I and I said, it's the, it's, it's the person who wakes up in the morning, brushes their teeth, thinks about the city, yeah. whether it's Limerick, which are going to have a directly elected mayor soon, Cork, Belfast, Dublin, London, wherever, right? Mm. What you do then is you try to put the community above the individual, right? So what is good for the individual this is what's called the paradox of aggregation in economics. So what is good for the individual is not always good for the community. So when you exercise your democratic right to say no to a housing development, it's good for you. Yeah. But it's not good for the community yeah. because the community needs the development to go through. And I think what we have done now is we've kind of found herself in this strange place where the right of the individual is supersedes the potential benefit to the community. So one person can stop something that could be of benefit to half a million people. Yeah, yeah. And it seems, and that's what Noah is talking about, it's high time you actually reverted that completely. Now the reason... The whole power dynamics. Yeah, so. and the reason the mayor of a city could do it is the mayor represents in Dublin, let's say, because we're from Dublin, a million people. Mm. Whereas a local politician in Dublin might only get into power on the back of a thousand votes. And I don't mean a thousand absolute votes, but the margin of victory could be a few hundred votes. Yeah, yeah. So therefore, every single vote is critical to the local politician. So the whole street that gets pissed off about cars being displaced from the cycle lane or the development to their street, that's enough to maybe determine the career of a local politician. Whereas if you've won major mayor, mm. the sense of community and the interest of the city and the interest of a million people supersedes the interest of one street. So where... Sorry, I th crisis that. We are in a political and democratic crisis yeah. because... We cannot fix our cities, not just here, but Galway and Limerick and Cork and all over the world. Mm. We cannot fix our cities without a little bit less democracy to preserve democracy. Now, why I have you there again. Why not use the time when you're locked up to learn economics? Join me on Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. Let's learn economics together. We have the economics course. Macroeconomics has never been as essential to understand. We have the Ask Mac tutorials every other week. We have Q&A. We've got the reading list. And more importantly, you become part of the community. If you have a question, if you have something that's going on, you want to ask me, join me on Patreon email in i will answer your question but more importantly it's ad free just you and me and your man across the way hey 
patreon.com forward slash Dave McWilliams and let's figure out the world together. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com.